Hey there, podcast fans. I'm here with your Define Your Why guru, Barbara Bray. <laughs> Hello there, Mom. Hi, Andrew. Uh, that was a fun way to introduce oh, me. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna plug your your book and your learning series as often as I can. Hint, hint <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, you're sweet. <laughs> well, I'm constantly working on that why myself. It's good because what happens is uh, you keep learning about yourself. It makes you grow and change and become a better person. So what are you smiling about today? What are you excited to share with us today? I had ah, this next guest. I just love her. I really do. It's one of the people that when you meet, you will fall in love with her. It's Keisha McDonald. Her story is amazing. She loves to travel. And so she's going to share all about her travels. She shares some of the stories uh, that what she went through. And uh, I don't even want to, I want to tease you. I don't want to give you, give it away. I want you to listen and and follow her journeys because I, I had no idea. And I've known Keisha a long time. And she's done a reflection with me. And I, anyway, listen, because you will fall in love with Keisha also. Well, podcast fans, thanks for following us and following Barbara Bray with all of her amazing friends and these amazing connections she's got. So stay tuned to Barbara Bray and Keisha McDonald. Well, hi, everyone. This is Barbara Bray. I'm so excited because I have the most wonderful person who we've just connected. It's Keisha McDonald. Hi, Keisha. Hi, Barbara. So good to be here with you. I'm sorry. Aloha, Keisha. Ah, aloha, yes. Good to see you. <laughs> yes. So I just have been wanting, I mean, we you've been on um, my show before. We've done a reflection and we've done a lot of Zooms together, <laughs> even dance parties. <laughs> but it's just like we've connected. And when we started talking, I realized, oh my gosh, you have such an amazing life. I wanted you on my show so bad. It was so great. So when you said yes, I, I was like, oh, this is going to be a great one. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, my life has had a lot to do with where I am now. So I guess it does help to explain some of those things along the way. Well, I thought people might not know everything. You know, uh, maybe a little, but you got some good things. So let me just boast a little bit about you and kind of tease every, a little bit about some of the things you you shared with me. So it's Keisha McDonald from Kailua, Kona, Hawaii. And Keisha is the EL resource teacher for the West Hawaii complex area. Where is that? Is that... So we are, I'm on the big, it's known as the big island. Hawaii uh -huh. Island is, it's called Hawaii Island, right? So we have Oahu, Maui, Kauai, but Hawaii Island is usually known as the big island. Mm. Um, and I am on the west side of the big island. So I'm not on the volcano side, which is on the east, but I'm on the western side. So um, we are known as the host of the International Ironman competition. Ooh. So people come here from all over the world. And we are also a very popular cruise ship destination. So you might have come here on a cruise ship before. No, not me. 
but that's okay. I'll come over there another time. <laughs> well, it's kind of good you're not over there with the volcano. It's been pretty active, right? Yes. And a few years ago, I mean, it actually was opening up in housing area, residential areas. So wow. we are lucky. We get the we get the earthquakes and we do get vog here instead of smog. We get vog, so air air particles in the air, but um, we mm. do not have the danger of the lava as of yet. Wow. Okay, so let's, let me tell a little more about you because uh, you had an exciting thing happen. Keisha is one of 49 public school educators chosen to be a 2022 Global Learning Fellow for the NEA Foundation. Okay, let me, I got to tell them about this and then we're going to talk about it a little later, but this is so cool. The fellowship includes a two-day professional development workshop in the fall and a 10-day international field study to South Africa. And guess what? Keisha lived there for 14 years, and we're going to talk about that too. See, she was in the Peace Corps as a volunteer in Lesotho and also lived in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Now, you just told me some of those things, and I went, you have an interesting life. This is... (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm. Well, I obviously I was very excited to get selected by the NEA mm-hmm. Foundation for the fellowship. Um, in general, they choose one person per state. Um, sometimes, what they do is they select the teacher of the year per state. But each state kind of has a different protocol for that. So I'm not a teacher of the year, but I I did apply. I was selected. Um, wow. And they they go to different countries. So I know they've been to Peru and China and some Scandinavian countries, but. I feel very blessed and lucky they're going to South Africa this year, um, COVID willing. And, (laughs) you know, I did live there for 14 years. So it's a little bit of a homecoming for me, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's also exciting to go in the role of an educator and to interact with schools and educators there because my life in Africa was mostly as a mom and a housewife and a mother and a business owner. And so it, it will be different to go back as an educator and looking from that educational lens. So oh, this I'm is going to be great. fun. I can't, yeah. you, you shared some pictures. We're going to put pictures on the post that goes with us, but um, it'll be fun to get the pictures of the schools and things, what's going on there and, and watch your journey. That is going to be fun. So yeah. it, instead of us going into all of that now, I kind of like everyone to start with their why. What is that big, mm, yeah, I, how do you say it? The big why, your purpose? I, you know, I, it's, it's always so hard, right, to crystallize it into one thing. So mm-hmm. when you when you told me to think about my why, I went back to a couple years ago, I had to create a vision statement for myself. Mm-hmm. And, and when I had to sit down and really think about what do I want? What do I want to do? What's my part in this world? Um, I wrote that I want to help create conditions that allow others to succeed at what they are being asked to do and support them to go beyond and pursue what they want to do. So my why, you know, I, you know, I, I love Joe Sanfilippo. I just, I just adore him. And he often talks about you know, we, we have our must-dos. We get mired in the must-dos, but we also have to remember our get-tos, right? I get to do this. I get to be this person. I get to help kids every day. And so my why is really about that. First of all, helping people to feel like they can meet their must-dos in a successful way and feel good about that, but then to go beyond those must-dos and get to the get-tos and to really have fun, you know, with what they, they're doing and, and and their passions and and maybe just helping them in the next step in their journey, you know? You've done that. You've helped me. 
I mean, I, I, I see you and what you do with kids, but I know what you're doing with teachers around all the different things you're doing, we're doing around mental health, but you still do a lot of that in your position, especially now with COVID you've done. I mean, there were times when I said, I just need to talk to Keisha (laughs) and you helped me through some things. So I know you do that for a lot of people. That's really beautiful. We'll write that up. That might be even come up with a title around that because that thing of doing the must-dos, I just wrote that for something. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did a Twitter chat, but I also did that for something else. And um, because I make my to-do list every day and Mm -hmm. now I have my must-dos and my get-to-dos and I have to do several of the getting, you know, the ones that you get to do or you want to do. Yes. Um, I, I do that every day because if I don't, it, it's just hard. It's, it makes right. it hard every day. Yeah. Right. We have to pay bills, you know, but life shouldn't be all about paying the bills, right? It should be <laughs> doing the other fun stuff in between the stuff we have to do. Well, that's beautiful. So I know a little bit about you, but I, the story of where you grew up, I mean, you sent me some pictures of places around the world. C- give me a little background of of what it was like growing up. So I grew up in the East Bay area of San Francisco. Uh, My dad born and raised in Oakland, California. And so I grew up, yes, I grew (laughs) up in a little, it actually isn't even a town or it wasn't when I was growing up, a town. It was an unincorporated area called Castro Valley. Oh yeah. And, you know, it was really, it was really the best of both worlds. Um, It was kind of had that small town vibe and, and, and sense of community. And we still, we, every year we had a rodeo and we had festivals where they'd shut down the main street and it really had that kind of small town hallmark Mm -hmm. town vibe. But then, you know, on our doorstep, we had Berkeley and Oakland and San Francisco and Santa Cruz, and we could run around and, you know, get like multicultural experiences and, and, you know, see the the modern hippies. And, you know, (laughs) so I really had, I was blessed with both. I had that kind of small town feeling, but then exposure to bigger ideas, you know, different types of people, all types of people. So it was, yeah, it was a really how, how good growing you, up. How long did you live there? I lived there until I went away to college. So, oh, you know, wow. I grew up in yeah the Bay Area and lived there. And then I went to UC Santa Barbara. So at the age hmm. of 18, I moved down there. Well, you know, it's, Oakland is my yard where I live, but Castro Valley is... 15 minutes away. And that's where I do my shopping. So <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it is really nice. It's a, it's nice, the diversity and having so much so close. It's, it's really nice. Well, that's fun. I knew it, but I didn't know anyone else knew it, that you were in my hometown. So that, I thought that was fun. Yeah. When you were growing up was school, you know, how was that for you? Um, you know, full confession, <laughs> I was that traditional successful student. I School was easy for me. I was a pleaser. I wanted to follow the rules. You know, I got straight A's. I was on student government. I played the sports. I did the volunteer and charity work. Um, and so school did come easy. And, you know, now as an educator, I can look back and I don't want to say that's the exception, but I think when I was growing up, I thought, well, this is how it is for everybody, right? I, it came very easy to me and it was easy to succeed. And I felt really good and, and confident and secure at school. And only now as an educator, looking through the lens of students who are very diverse and you have different needs, do I realize I have a little more sympathy for my 
classmates who probably didn't experience school the way the same way I did. But for me, it did come easy. It, it wasn't difficult to be successful. I got a lot of praise. I got a lot of, you know, positive attention. And so school was something that I loved. I loved doing school and it, it was a good place for me. Is that why you wanted to go into, or did you know you wanted to go into education because of that or? Oh gosh, no, no, I never <laughs> I never intended to be a teacher ever. I was one of the, I literally would say I could never be a teacher. I'll never be a teacher. Yeah, I was that person. I thought, you know, the patients required to be a teacher. And (laughs) I I also had this this impression of myself that if I knew something that Mm -hmm. I did not have the ability to break it down into smaller parts to help somebody else learn it, you know, and of course, now that I'm an educator, I realize that isn't what you do, right? You're not imparting knowledge. You're creating learning experiences. You're facilitating their learning. You're not teaching, right? But I always said, oh, I could never be a teacher. So (laughs) I had no idea that I have a very non-traditional path to teaching. And, you know, like I said, I wasn't just a midlife career changer. It's probably like my eighth career. And it's it's Mm. something I absolutely thought I would never do. (laughs) And here I am and I love it. And and, and when I look back on my life, I see that I was maybe headed that way all the time. Uh-huh. You know, I was I was a camp counselor. Um, I was a resident assistant in the dorms as a sophomore. So here I was uh-huh. only one year, you know, one year older, but still facilitating the life, residential life of a freshman. And when I look back now, you know, all those kind of leadership positions I ever uh, filled, I think that's what really helped me become a teacher because as we know, all teachers are leaders. Um, and so it's, this is to me just a different manifestation of that. Isn't that funny? I mean, when you think eight, I mean, they always say, you know, like we'll have eight or nine careers, but it actually does happen with a lot of us. We're not sure of our direction. And, uh, some people, you know, they fall into a job and then they retire, (laughs) They do, but not everybody now it's a little different. Yeah. So, so you had, do you feel that a lot of those careers, like you said, being a camp counselor and the resident, all of those, you felt you were a leader. Do you feel that every teacher is, you said you think every teacher is a leader, but do you feel they feel that way? No, no, unfortunately I, and it, you know, I have such a, I have a passion for this topic um, <laughs> and teacher leadership. And um, I, I, I don't like the word teacher leader, right? Because it's like a, it's a it, qual- it qualitates, it quantitates the word leader. And I know that every teacher is a leader, but I do not feel that every teacher feels supported in a leadership position, yeah. that they are recognized, that they are valued for their true skills, right? Um, mm-hmm. And talents and gifts. So I don't think that teachers all see themselves like that, but that's, I definitely see every single teacher. So Okay, we're going to go into the Peace Corps because I don't know when you went within the career time. Was it, right. d- did you have jobs first and then joined the Peace Corps? I mean, is, how did you uh, I mean, that I out? went, so I went to, you know, university and in university, I did a few things. I, you know, I did an internship in Washington, D.C. and then, you know, a travel overseas experience. And I did leave college and I did have a couple jobs, um, but then I went into the Peace Corps just uh, just about a year after I graduated university. So mm. that was, you know, I had a few jobs, but nothing serious. And then I did go into the Peace Corps and that's a two year mm. commitment. So what, I mean, I'm just wondering, because 
you had some pictures of Japan. Was that mm-hmm. at, that's after, right? I mean, no. I, I'm kind of like trying to figure out your timeline here. <laughs> so that when I was in college, yeah. I participated in a global peace and security studies program. Oh, um, through okay. the UC system, University of California system. So there were American professors and Japanese professors who were collaborating at a Japanese university. And so I went to Japan and I studied at a Japanese university with a combination of Japanese and American professors with a focus on global peace and security studies. And we, you know, we did go to um, Hiroshima and, you know, visited the, the nuclear war memorial and, you know, we learned a lot about, you know, this was the early 90s and, and nuclear war was at that point, you know, there was still a lot of yeah warm, tri- warm triggers. It was still a concern that we were all going to just blow up our planet. So, um, you know, just educating ourselves about the history of how countries get along together and why we shouldn't all be angry at each other and throw bombs at each other. Right. So. Wow. That yeah. is. Yeah. So and you stayed there some time. I mean, it sounds like. It was a pretty exciting experience for you. Is that that kind of got the travel bug for you? Or I mean, when you joined the Peace Corps, you you could end up anywhere, right? And right. So back then you kind of threw your hat in the ring and said, I'm available, these are my skills, and put me anywhere you want. And I assumed incorrectly, um, I had studied Japanese, mm-hmm. I had studied Russian, Ooh. and I had studied Spanish. And I thought I would end up in a region where somebody spoke one of those languages, but no, they sent me to Africa, (laughs) Lesotho, um, and I had to learn another language, but it was fine. So um, I'll never forget the day the recruiter called me to say, oh, we got your placement. We're going to send you to Lesotho. And I I was like, yeah, that's so awesome. Thank you. And I'm like, wait, hang on a second. You know, this is in the old days of of landline. I put the phone down and I ran to a map because I had no idea where it was or where I was going. So it's the only other country in the world besides the Vatican, Vatican City, that is completely landlocked by another country. I I had never heard of it. And it turns out it has the highest low point of any country in the world. It's a very mountainous country and it snows there. (laughs) So coming from California... And thinking I'm going to Africa, you picture, you know, a jungle or something. And I ended up in the mountains where it snowed. Oh, my God. Do they have like plateau areas with gardening and other things? I mean, you know how they have in some countries, they have the mountains, but they also have um, grassland. And this country is entirely mountainous. Um, oh, my God. So it, you people would terrace or create their own kind of areas to have of crops and grow things because yeah, pretty much the entire country is mountains. My goodness. I got to look on the map. Maybe we can put a, ma- a little map of it so we could show everyone because that is so cool. How did that go? You said you were there. Were you in that one place 14 years or were they there and then other places too? And Right. So Peace Corps itself is, it's a two-year commitment. You do, um, you know, a few months of training and language and cultural assimilation training beforehand. Then you go to your site um, and that's for two years. So I did live, you know, in a little mud hut uh, with no water or electricity. And this is pre-internet and pre-cell phone days um, and no car or vehicle of my own um, for two years. And then, that, 
that point, I uh, put my stuff in a backpack and I cashed in my plane ticket home and I started backpacking around Southern Africa. And then in the course of traveling is when I met the person that was going to be my husband. And we ended up uh, meeting and then getting married and living in Zimbabwe. Okay. That, <laughs> all right. Now, I really, you know, I've known you a long time. That's the first I know about this. This is really, really cool. Yeah. One, okay. So you are living in a hut without any utilities or anything. That's a big mm-hmm. change from Castor Valley. <laughs> yeah, it was. You know, to, you know, our, you know, people when they think of that, I think they think of the physical hardships first, uh-huh. right? You know, living without running water or electricity or um, being in touch with anyone. But you know, to be honest, the first three months that I was at my site, I cried. Oh. I cried a lot. I was lonely. Oh. I was lonely, yeah. you know, because I was, I, I was living in a new culture and a new environment. I, my language skills, even though I was like top of my class was, I was speaking at the level of like a three or four year old, you know? Um, wow. and I was living totally immersed in a place I held up a Time magazine that had Bill Clinton on the cover and they didn't know who he was. Yeah. You know, like they're in the, they're in this corner of the world and they would, I'd say I'm from America and they would say, how many, how long by taxi does it take to get there? Yeah. They don't even know what an ocean is probably. And so I was in the middle of this kind of oasis of their culture and trying to learn theirs. And yet, you know, they really had no way of really knowing mine and I was lonely and it was hard you know, when you grow up in, in the Western civilization, Western world, the United yeah. States, there's a TV, there's a radio, there's a telephone, there's somebody down the hallway. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I was spending hours and hours on my own, feeling very ununderstood, misunderstood. You know, they would, yeah. they would come to me and they'd say, are you a girl or are you a mother? Oh. Because oh. in their culture, there's nothing in between. They don't know about like independent young women, right? Here I was this independent young woman, like graduated from college. And I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And you get there and you realize you're either somebody's child or you're a mom, you know, in that really traditional culture. So, you know, I just felt very um, alone and very isolated and it was really hard. And then I Mm. finally just kind of gave up all my ideas, right? Of being busy or being engaged. And I just learned to sit in the present and I would sometimes just sit there and watch the clouds go by. And that was my entertainment. And I had to let go of so many things I'd been doing so many parts of my identity, right? Like being a successful student and getting Mm -hmm. praised and all those things just disappeared suddenly. And I was, I was literally crying, (laughs) but I mean, again, it was the best thing I've ever done. Yeah, Um, It set me up for life. I can be anywhere anytime on my own. And I, you know, I, I, I've learned. While you're saying that, I'm thinking of what people went through with COVID, you know, having to isolate and how hard it was for people. I think when you look back at the, the ability to, okay, I've had times when I had no internet or I had no power and uh, I, you know, I'd freak out and it's only like a few hours, nothing, not three months, <laughs> but I'm, I got it that at that time, why am I so t- attached to things and to, and why, like you said, the clouds moving by or just walking out in the garden and just seeing the birds and 
the flowers or whatever. I mean, the idea is we don't have those opportunities, but we were forced into it, but we didn't know how to do it, you know? And now we're trying to do social emotional learning and, <laughs> and teaching people how to do it, but it's really, really tough. You got an experience at a very young age that probably really shaped your life. It did. It did in many ways. Um, you know, it's funny, before I left for the Peace Corps, people would say to me, you know, oh, it's two years of your life. Why are you sacrificing two years of your life? Mm-hmm. And I would just say, I would look at them and I'd say, you know, the country I'm going to, the average, you know, lifespan is like 47. So for them, two years might be a long time, but for me, it's not. It's not a long time. I'm going to have a very long life and two years is really not much. And, mm. you know, I was, I was in college. I was doing well. I was, you know, successful. I was Phi Beta Kappa and Dean's List and all that. And, you know, I had plans to go to graduate school and um, I studied history, public policy, and I wanted to get a master's degree in public policy and a law degree. And I, you know, I imagined myself going to work for a think tank or working with the UN or, and I, I just got to this point where I realized if I am going to be anywhere near making decisions or planning policies or, or, or doing any kind of intervention for people, I should know what it's like to live like that person. Uh, I, I mean, that's what the whole true thing of what empathy is. But a lot of us don't even go to the next door or down the hill, you know, wherever it is, somewhere where we live, we don't see how people live. We're, we're very insular and it's really nice that at least your experiences would be, it's fun to share like what you're doing. And then, and then you met someone and then you traveled around, you were there, you said 14 years, you traveled all around South Africa or? Well, so, I mean, I was there 20 years total. So I was in the Peace years. Corps. Oh. Yeah, I was in the Peace Corps um, for a couple of years in Lesotho. I was traveling around. Then I uh, was in Zimbabwe for about five years. And then I was in South Africa for tw- for 14 years. Wow. Oh, so that's what it was. I had it wrong. Oh, oh my goodness. So So you're going back. (laughs) Yes, I am going back. I am going back. Um, And not exactly to where I was living, but, you know, the same country. And and again, so, you know, South Africa is just amazing. They have 11 official languages. I don't know if you know that. No. 11 official languages. You know, they have so many different peoples and tribes and um, it's so diverse. It's so varied. And I'm just looking forward to hearing some of the sounds and eating some of the food and listening to some of the music again, you know, that I was immersed in for, you know, a very significant part of my life. So you probably, it's like family for you, probably some of the people because you lived with them and yeah. you can't, I mean, have you kept in touch with people or? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I had, you know, I am divorced now, but I'm still in touch with all the family that's there. Um, my ex-husband's side of the family, and I have some very good friends. In fact, you know, it was recently my birthday. And yes. The beautiful, the beautiful thing about having friends in another time zone is they start celebrating before you. So every <laughs> year I get 36 hours of my birthday because they start, they're 12 hours ahead from oh. Hawaii and they're the exact opposite side of the world. And, um, every year they start sending me my messages and, and notes and voice notes, um, wishing me happy birthday. So I get 36 hours. Oh, well, we were all Thanks celebrating you, uh, okay. all over social media. 
<laughs> yeah. So I, I hope you had a wonderful birthday, by the way. I did. Thank you. Oh, that is I good. So after you finished the Peace Corps, is that when you came to Hawaii? So um, I, we came to Hawaii seven years ago. Um, what had happened was in 2000, my parents moved here from oh. the Bay Area. And so throughout my time um, in South Africa, you know, I would come and visit. When I would come and visit, I would visit here. And they moved here. And I got to this point. I loved South Africa. I loved living there. I loved raising my children there. But at a certain point, they started getting older. And I really wanted to expose them to educational experiences, especially here in the United States. And just to give them different opportunities, you know, not that they all want to go to college, but I wanted them to have the opportunity to do so. And so I started looking at the possibility of moving back to the United States. And after 20 years of living so far away from my family, right, it was four airplanes. It would take about 42 hours to travel. Well, Hawaii and South Africa are, like I said, literally the opposite sides of the earth. And wow. So, you know, traveling with like a two-year-old <laughs> or, so it was, it was a very long trip. And, um, wow, yeah, I after, mm, so after 20 years away, I, I just really wanted to be near my family and I wanted my children to experience my parents and I wanted my parents to experience my children. And so that's how I came to Hawaii because they're here. Oh, well, that's nice to have family. I mean, it's, a, it's a very soft place to land <laughs> you know, after after living out the United States for so many years um, and, you know, living in a third world country and a slower mm-hmm. pace of life and different mm-hmm. values, right? Very family oriented and less consumeristic. And, and so Hawaii has been a very good place for me and my family to come to and to kind of reintegrate into uh, United States life because. Hawaii is very special and very different. And yeah, we've been very lucky. Well, there is some layback because I've done a lot of work in Hawaii. And I I said, oh, I was supposed to be at a a workshop and I got caught in traffic. And they said, no, don't worry. (laughs) Take your time. Get some coffee. Just relax. (laughs) Oh, I love this. I love the way the aloha spirit, you know, it's just really nice. So. Well, that is amazing. Um, And so when I first met you, you were doing a a job around uh, supporting every, I don't know if it was the district on mental health. Was it? When I first met you, so when I started as a teacher, I'm certified health K to 12. I was a teen health teacher at a school. Good fun. And then, um, you know, my career has changed so greatly. I, I, you know, I, at various times I've been a curriculum coordinator, a test coordinator, a student support services coordinator, Mm -hmm. a title one coordinator. But at the time when I met you, my work was really centering around uh, the counseling department, uh, building SEL curriculum specific to that school for their advisory Mm -hmm. classes. Um, And so, you know, I was very immersed also my work in the health, teen health class. Just very mm-hmm. immersed in, um, you know, you know, you and I touched on like suicide prevention and the importance yeah. of education and the importance of mental health is health. It's not just mental. It's it's not compartmentalized. It's part of our our wholeness and our well being, and it it deserves to be honored and to be taught and to have 
children have opportunities to practice an important skill in life, you know? So that's where I was when you and I met. I just loved her. In fact, I'll put a link to our reflection because it was at, I can't, it was before COVID or after, I can't remember when we did it now. I'll have to look. Um, I think it was very early days. Very early of it. But it was that, it was, that was, it's now still a really big thing. I mean, even more so. Even more more so, so because it's very uncertain what's going to happen next. And, and kids are feeling, I mean, they say learning loss, but there are some things that happened. It's not, there is no, really, we don't want to go into that. Okay. So, but the main thing is you brought that, I mean, think of all the experiences you had that kind of led you there. It's just amazing. I mean, you made me feel when we talked, because I met you, well, I met you a whole bunch of ways, um, but we were on some panel or something. And when you started talking, I was going, this person knows so much about the, well, around mental health issues, especially for teachers and kids. It just, I wanted to learn more from you. Mm. It was amazing. Well, again, I think when I had my role as a health teacher, you know, people hear the words teen health and obviously you immediately think of the sex, drugs and rock and roll. But for me, again, it's like we're issued these bodies like they always say kids don't come with instruction manuals. Right. We're issued these bodies and we don't exactly get a manual on how to use it, but we all get one, whether we didn't go to the shop to buy it, we didn't pick it out. It's given (laughs) to us and it really is our, our our duty and our obligation to ourselves to, to live the best life we can. And again, it's not, it's not just about your jumping jacks and and you're eating your green veggies. It's about keeping the whole part, your body, your mind, your health, your soul, your spirit, you know, well. And I think when I was a health teacher, I did, I taught those things too, right? I did teach your physiological bodies and all those things, but we, we, I really did take time to build in, you know, communication styles and getting on with other people and keeping yourself mentally fit. Um, because you know, it's middle school is always a difficult age for everybody. And I just thought, you know, if I can impart some skills now for that, it will see them, you know, on, and and they can build that later on as they go along. So. Well, see, I worked with middle schools also, so it was nice. That's another thing we had. And that age is so crucial. And uh, so that to me was wonderful. And I, I'm glad that now you're doing, um, you're an EL resource teacher. I mean, and you know, all these languages on top of everything. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's one thing I, I definitely do have an appreciation, right. For, um, other experiences for mm-hmm. other skills and talents. Um, I think one of the biggest things we see in, right. That whether you want to call it English learner or multilingual learner field is, you know, one of the biggest things we always try to impart is, as as assets, you know, what are your students' assets? Don't look mm-hmm. at it like it's a, it's an inability. Don't look at it like it's an issue where, I mean, of course, it's going to be a challenge to accessing our traditional education, but it's a skill. It's, I mean, how many of us speak more than one language? It's a beautiful skill and let's build mm-hmm. those assets and let's focus on what they can do versus what they can't do. 
And I, again, I, I definitely do have, I come to the job with an appreciation for that a little bit. I have studied at one time about seven different languages. Don't ask me to speak most of them, but I have a love of languages. Um, and so I, I do appreciate that. The other thing mm-hmm. about the EL uh, component, you know, families are such a big part of it. Family and community engagement, because mm-hmm. we know we're not going to, you know, really reach our students until we understand where they're from. And the family is a big part of that. And so, you know, what a pleasure and a privilege it is to try to enhance ways to reach out to families and incorporate them into that learning experience. Because some of our, our families, have, they didn't attend school in the United States. Yeah. And you need, you need yeah. to invite that. You need to be very intentional about inviting them in and including them in their child's educational journey, because that's the best way to cement the learning and, and to help them be successful. Well, especially in Hawaii, you have some very diverse uh, population. And I mean, the whole thing is, it's not just the family, it's the culture. Right. I, and so what that whole idea of culturally responsive teachers is probably one of the big things that as part of EL, you're you're looking at how do you appreciate each other's culture? You kind of tell the stories about it. You get to know about them. Yeah. Yep. Yes. And hold space and honor. You know, um, we talk about culturally responsive teaching and culturally responsive um, responsible teaching, as our friend Hedrick likes to say. Yeah. Um, but there's also, you know, culturally sustaining pedagogy, which um, Django Paris talks a lot about. It's not only about being responsive. It's not about seeing the need and just responding to the need. It's really like, how are you sustaining that indigenous culture, that home culture in a way that allows them to truly like shine and to truly have respect, not just kind of like, well, I'm going to allow you to stand up and do a presentation about your culture, but you know, how are we truly incorporating, expanding, um, and amplifying that culture and honoring it. And that's, Mm. that, that's how we cross over from being culturally responsive to being culturally sustaining, you know? Oh my gosh. I love that because that's the, you know, the, the problem is the teacher, they you know, they're not really taught this. This is something that we need to bring in as part of the professional learning opportunities on an ongoing basis, because look at your class, there's, they're, you know, they're very diverse. And even if they may be very similar backgrounds, they're all coming from different backgrounds and different cultures. Absolutely. You know, for us here in Hawaii, the biggest example would be, um, you know, when people say, oh, they're Marshallese, they're from the Marshall Islands, right? Mm. But, you know, in their culture and their world and their realm, there's, you know, there's no, or they're Micronesian, they're they're from the Micronesian Islands. Micronesia is a massive region. And they don't think of themselves as like, oh, I'm Micronesian. You know, I'm Chukese, I'm Pompeian, I'm Kroshayan. And so if we are going to try to label somebody just like, you know, again, just like we have uh, Caribbean Afro-Americans, we have, you know, some, we have people from all over. And, and so you need to, you can't just throw people in a bucket, right. To their region or the color of their skin, you know, they have a true, really specific cultural identity. And we need to learn, first of all, to be aware of what we don't know, and mm-hmm. then to learn how to recognize how to give them 
the space, hold space for them to be Mm -hmm. able to really teach us and demonstrate and be proud of their individualized cultural identity. Well, it's really, I mean, I went to New Zealand and found, and their whole culture is, the the policies now are to uh, integrate the Maori culture. And it, and I was a part of an online, a virtual conference, and they had me introduced in Maori, and then they had the kids come up and sing in Maori, and I'm like, could we do that? I mean, that's amazing. If we could, what if you've come from a country and you don't even know that language? What if you could learn that language and learn about the culture? And then the families would be more involved too. Exactly. Exactly. I just get all excited. I'm sorry. I can't wait. To, like, this is all about you, but I, I got all excited. <laughs> no, it's great. This is, again, this is where we learn from each other. It's a growing <laughs> process for everybody. So, so um, when are you leaving for um, South Africa, you know, for the fellowship? Yes, that will be in July. Okay. So, and the, I do have to share a caveat, um, you know, with COVID and everything, the plan is to definitely go to South Africa and we've already had, you know, lectures and webinars, with South African professors and, and, and an opportunity to, to learn more about their educational systems. If for some reason COVID intervenes, um, an alternative place would be to go to Peru. Oh, wow. <laughs> as long as Peru is okay too. But right, right. My, my so. dream, my bucket list is to go to Machu Picchu. If you needed someone to take you know, hold your bags. Just let me know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually, I've, I've had the privilege of going to Machu Picchu. Um, I would go again, though. And if you'd like to plan that sometime, we can. But okay, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those places you go and you want time to stop. You just want to sit yeah. there and you want time to stop. The energy there mm-hmm. is just, and it's, it's amazing. So please go still, put it on your list and make sure you get, you get to your get to list. That's my get-to list. I have some of those. Well, for you now, um, now that we have to come to a close, which I I could do this all day with you, Keisha, you're just amazing. What is this? um, I mean, right now you're an EL teacher. You're doing the fellowship. Is there any other big goals, big bucket lists, any kind of big things that you're dreaming about or... Well, my bucket list almost always includes travel. Um, yeah. So actually tonight in a few hours, I will be getting on a plane and going to Fairbanks, Alaska. And oh. I will be getting in a bush plane and flying up into the Arctic Circle, um, chasing the Aurora Borealis. And I am meeting my son there. He turns 21 next week. So it's his 21st birthday. And I am celebrating oh. The last of his childhood and his, his run into adulthood, um, hopefully by seeing the Northern Lights. Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> get some pictures. By the time when this goes up, you'll be back probably. What we'll do is share this. Oh, the, I've always wanted to see the Borealis. That's so wonderful. And being in a bush plane, that's going to be exciting going around the circle there. Oh, my gosh. Yes, it's going to be an adventure. Whether we see the Northern Lights or not, it will definitely be an adventure. I'm looking forward to But yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. My whole life, as we were talking, I think I've, I've definitely... I live a a responsive life. I don't know that I ever set out goals and I stick to one pathway. I kind of (laughs) tend to ebb and flow. So, I mean, in terms of a professional bucket list or what's next, Keisha, um, 
you know, I do love education. I plan to stay in it for a while, but I also, I see that time coming to a close and I would like to go back and, and volunteer in the Peace Corps again and be a Peace wow. Corps volunteer and do that for a couple of years. And then after that, we'll see. I tell you, well, we just have to keep talking <laughs> because, uh, you know, you never know what door opens over here and then you might go through another door over there. I mean, have a wonderful trip. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your, your life and your story with me. This was wonderful. Thank you. Mahalo. Mahalo. This is Barbara Bray. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Keisha McDonald. Make sure you check out the blog post on barbabray.net that goes with this podcast. It includes pictures from her travels, stories from some of her experiences, and her contact information. Oh, you just have to go there. Please subscribe to my podcast, and it would be so awesome if you wrote a review. You can also subscribe to my website at barbabray.net to receive updates, more inspirational podcasts, and a link to resources, stories, my books, and so much more. So thanks again for listening. Keep sharing your story and please stay safe and be well.